Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Well, welcome to Cross Section. We are unusually all together in a room because we've all been at an event. I say all, we don't have Joe Evans with us today, but I am joined by Alicia and Danny, and we are excited to be doing this kind of live and in person. We're going to be picking up on a couple of stories this week. We're going to look particularly at that sermon, the most watched sermon ever. Is it? Was it? What do we think? Uh, and we're going to be picking up on themes around racial justice, in part because we've been having a council meeting around that and to pick up on some themes from last week. And at the end, I'm going to ask each of you, I'm just giving you a heads up to think about a new story this week, bring it to the table, give us some chat around it. So with that brief introduction, we are ready to chat in person. I'm so excited about that bit of it. About the funeral. Alyssa, did you watch it? Did you sit down and dedicate a whole day? To my surprise, I did. I did watch the funeral. I watched uh, the Westminster Hall, the procession, the movement to Westminster Abbey. I watched the service, the sermon, the outfits. What were they wearing? What were they not wearing? I then had to take a power nap because the weekend was quite busy for me. And then I resumed watching uh, the Windsor procession as well. So, yeah, I I had a good few hours engaged with the funeral this weekend. So, yeah. What was a standout, standout kind of moment or part of it? I think for me, and we'll probably talk about this, I I made a joke to my mum that, and I can't believe I'm saying, sharing this on the podcast, I made a joke to my mum that the, the British does imperialism well. And what I meant by that was that everything about the procession, the marching, the music, the whole somber atmosphere I thought was well executed I thought it looked incredible I thought you know it had marks of history in terms of the gun carriages from I think it last carried Queen Victoria or something like that and there was a lot of comments about this is very British and I thought that was an incredible comment and remark to that but something in that I was like this is it made me kind of proud in that moment but also it felt slightly jarring slightly different yeah, because you're using imperialism beyond pomp and ceremony itself. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, so we might pick that up because <laughs> we're going to talk about racial justice as well. So that is interesting here. Danny, what struck you? Well, I watched uh, most of the funeral. I had to take a toddler to the park, so I uh, didn't catch all of the the service at Windsor. I think it, is, it was a remarkable event, and I think it was remarkable because very rarely are that many people engaged in a single event Uh, so you do have this kind of sense of a collective point where everyone was watching i saw an estimate that 55.1 billion people watched it i have no idea how that's true or how that's calculated because that's more than half the people in Mm. the whole world i just don't know if that's accurate i think it's 28 million in the uk that's probably a stronger number isn't it like there was a real collective gathering in the uk i can believe that in fact i wouldn't be surprised if it was higher so, but it was this moment of actually everyone was engaged with this. Everyone saw it, and then different people uh, pick out different bits that they loved or they were asking questions about. Whether it's I think it was the Archbishop of York who dropped the bit of paper from his uh, his order of service, and he's just stood there, and the cameras are on him, and that bit of paper's on the ground. And I did notice later on it had gone, so yes. someone had managed to to pick it up or remove it. So everyone takes their own thing from it but it was this collective thing that we so rarely have in our society now 
And it was a, I mean, it was a church service. It was really, it was quite short and tight. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize until afterwards that the Archbishop of Canterbury had used 502 words. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, engagement in that piece in particular, because it is this arguably, almost certainly, the most watched, stroke, listened to sermon mm-hmm. ever. I mean, I thought about that, and I thought the Sermon on the Mount, because it's written and repeated, but let's say as a, as a kind of live event in the moment, uh, reflections on the actual sermon from either of you? Either of you want to kick in? Otherwise, I thought I it was better when I read it than when I heard it, which is interesting. I, the, the overall service, what really struck me, and I'm not from a traditional church background at all, but it was the, the sense of liturgy, of what it was telling about the Christian faith and what we believe about life and about death that came through throughout the service, mm-hmm. through the readings and through the prayers and through the, the choral singing and everything. And that was almost reinforced by the words from Justin Welby. And actually, I it was when I read back over the words that I thought, These are, he's not spared a word. He had 502 words and they all counted. Yeah, it, but actually what really struck me was it was some of the liturgy, some of the, the choral singing, which is very unusual. Yeah, the whole thing tied together. I think I, I, I agree, not liturgic. I'm not from a liturgical background either, but that's what struck me was that prayer at the end. So there's a Trinitarian prayer. I was again struck by it and its brevity. I mean, the readings, Baroness Scotland, the first reading she did, I think she was the 1 Corinthians 15 mm-hmm. one. The power in that reading, I'm not aware of any faith background. I don't know, but I mean, you sense she understood the passage the way she read it mm-hmm. in a powerful way. This justice was equally powerful as a passage. I didn't get the same <laughs> sense that she understood like the, the, the force of the words that she was reading. But overall, I thought it was incredibly constructed. And my chance to anybody, I mean, I'd love to set that as a preaching assignment, do a sermon in 500 and two words, I mean, because a lot of people go, oh, I could have done this, what about this? You're like, do it in 500 words and communicate. That was a family funeral, as well as everything else, uh-huh. tying together a cultural theme, the we'll meet again, which I thought he did very well, the Vera Lynn song, and brought that in, but put just that little hint of a challenge about what that means for us. And he tied in the king, and presumably with some level of consent. I can't imagine he, you know, he's got a line, I've read it. I know his majesty shares the same faith and hope in Jesus Christ as his mother. That's a pretty uh, punchy little line because we had, well, I had my doubts, I'll speak for me. I mean, Charles went through the whole defender of the face thing. What was he going to do? We knew the Queen had a personal faith that was different for her. And obviously, with some level, I would assume, of consent from Charles, he's had that line in, uh, is tying Charles into the legacy of his mother very tightly and the faith legacy of his mother specifically. Well, and the Queen is interesting because in the last 20 years, she's been so much more explicit about her mm. faith. Didn't know what it was maybe her golden jubilee in 2002 since then most of her christmas messages referred quite explicitly to her faith in jesus and that became much more apparent i think king charles would be described as definitely described himself as a churchgoer i think you almost see the challenge in the monarchy for his personal faith but then actually there's no one else in the family goes to church there's that's not that same level of commitment so it will be interesting to see how he speaks about faith and whether he does and whether it is a theme he picks up on. We've got a few months until Christmas. True. I totally agree with both of what you're saying in terms of the opportunity. And I particularly like Danny's point about the whole service speaking to the hope and the resurrection and how Christians understand and process death. I think 
encouragement or constructive, if they were given 600 words, uh, (laughs) to share a gospel message is that if you listen again or read just Justin Welby's piece, I thought the part that was missing is the explicit nature of the cross. I think with his words, if he, he used that element, then it would be quite explicit that that the mercy judgment of God is only made possible through the cross of Calvary. And it could be said as that simple line, but everything else implied that, filled that out. But I think for a listener that doesn't have a strong uh, liturgy background or doesn't have a church background, the words in and of themselves left it open to goodness, possible charitable workings, possible right living is how God would look upon you favourably. So that would be my my one constructive. The judgment was there, the same person to Jesus, but the high, he said, in fact, I think he said expressly, it's the, he, the text that he was reading from John 14 said, who to follow, maybe not how to follow. And one of the responses certainly was, well, actually, Jesus is pretty, it's repent and believe, mm-hmm. it's through the cross. So there, there is that further sign posting. But then there's an opportunity for us, for those in churches, of for course. those of us in conversation to, to push that on a little bit. We're here at council and, and, and Shamara Fletcher, in fact, who's on our council, was one of the people who, who prayed. I had the observation made to me about the pomp and the ceremony, but also the lack of diversity in those reflected. She would have been one of the few non-white participants in the event. And not even in the event, because actually Pastor Agu was there, who's a friend, like mm-hmm. a friend of EA's. Uh, actually, the church were probably doing a little more in the representation, but also in the parades afterwards. I mean, it was an incredibly white event from that point of view and you've noted imperialism in passing Alyssa so I mean even in Northern Ireland people were going that's weird there were 140 ratings these naval officers yep. all white and not only was I struck that they were all white it's that nobody spotted that and thought gosh that might not look right I mean to possibly the defense I think I did see a mixed heritage individual so it wasn't purely white but I'm not surprised that the representation of the procession didn't capture the Commonwealth. I mean, there was Commonwealth procession people. Yes, I get that. But I'm not surprised that the racial element, someone didn't think maybe we should dot our I's and cross our T's and have full breadth of representation. I'm not surprised by that at all, that that would be considered in this moment. And that takes us, so I've I've said why we're here, why we all are together, and and I just want to emphasize my personal excitement of this. It's so different than doing this online and streaming. We can look at each other and know who's coming in and what are we doing? But we've been here together as the Evangelical Alliance Council, which is about 60-odd Christians from across different spectrums of the church and Christian life in the UK who can help steer us as an organization. And that's great for us, but actually the theme and what we were wrestling with was racial justice specifically on this occasion. And so I do think it it ties into some of what we've been talking about and at the event we were reflecting on the Queen's death, but also that legacy creates a challenge as well for us. So it's fascinating just to hear a variety of talks and I wanna take some time now for us just to reflect on that. So it's topical for us. Uh, I know we're straying maybe from the weekly news, but uh, and we're gonna come back to that at the end. I mean, I'll start, I'll just kind of open up a little bit of history. It was interesting to have one of our contributors just chatting about, right from Aristotle, there were different versions of who who mattered in society. Some were free, some were slaves, and that that was kind of written in. And then the real challenge I was struck by was the papal bull, basically allowing Europeans to go off and discover other nations, but to take them over with papal consent. I I, I hope I'm not jumping too much to say. I mean, essentially, it seemed like a kind of theological or an ecclesial, a church statement that said, endorsing slavery of a form 
or at least taking over other countries and implicitly and maybe explicitly within that the people within them and then the enlightenment thought that took that on and categorized people and the kind of hierarchy within humanity and just to be both reminded and challenged that history was uh, i find a really helpful opening as we engaged in some of this stuff but i want to you guys can take on maybe a little bit more of what we were hearing and then the how that how you were struck by that in light of the conversations that we've had recently on the podcast too. I think one of the things that struck me is how do we move beyond the kind of flashpoint moments? So whether in recent weeks it's been uh, the death of Chris Cabot or a couple of years ago, George Floyd, when you have these high points of attention where there is a sense of, right, we've got to say something, we've got to do something. And there is a sense of collective attention around an issue. How do we work in the longer term uh, to address some of the longer questions? So we were talking yesterday afternoon about policing and criminal justice and the importance of churches being involved and involved with communities at the centre of some of these uh, situations. But that doesn't happen overnight. That doesn't happen uh, after the crisis. It happens before. And it's the role of churches in communities to work for reconciliation, to work across uh, their community so that they have the opportunities to engage both with the police and with families and with others when these issues do arise. Uh, because I think sometimes we've been we've been a bit too far behind and sometimes actually churches have just been jumping in with kind of statements of good intent after the event rather than having put in the work over the years. Mm. And I think one of the contributors that injured me or reminded me is not just the our theology being something that we believe in, in our thoughts or in our words, but actually it should be something which we practice. What is the fullness of the gospel? What is what is God's message to to us? What is the ministry of reconciliation that He's gifted to all believers in that? Racial justice isn't just an add-on or a tick box exercise, but it's something that we should be living out both in our relationships and our pursuit, uh, uh, the revelation vision of all tribes, all nations, all languages, worshipping around the throne of God and, and saying, worthy is the lamb. And how can I in my current day practice what I believe about Jesus and his kingdom and his goodness? How can I do that in my everyday? And I was, it was great to be in a conversation with individuals talking about racial justice and young people and how for them they're a generation for whom they they want to see change and they want to see it lived out and that kind of practice before them and and so often they're pulled by different cultural trends or, or different celebrity movements or different spaces of activism and they're drawn by that because people are prepared to put what they believe to be true and to be different and give their time to that, go to marches or, or you know, rally or, or do things. And I think as Christians, so often what we believe is somewhat far further ahead to how quick we are to walk in that direction and that petition. So it was a great opportunity to be challenged, to be encouraged, to reflect. We are about an hour since the conversation so there's still more remuneration that needs to take place but yeah it was a, a great opportunity to be amongst friends I yeah, think that go ahead Danny I think that tension between I think it was described as practical theology and practiced theology really struck me as well in that what we say we believe and what is witnessed in the way that we live out our beliefs mm. aren't always the same and I think as Christians, it's very easy and it's very important to emphasise our creation 
as everyone made in the image of God and the, the commonness of that creation. And yet actually, where are the ways that we don't see that worked out fully in our churches? Never mind mm -hmm. in other areas of society. Where, where do we see that in our churches that actually doesn't always add up to that? Where are the tensions between communities mm -hmm. and how are we seeking to bring reconciliation? And just fascinating hearing some of the, the range of different contexts from Chinese churches wrestling with Mandarin and Cantonese speaking communities, different different communities in different parts of the country uh, with what it means to have an intercultural church and what that looks like. And it's just some of these situations are really complex, but I don't think that means we can ignore them. Mm. Well, I think that's exactly it. We, we said, look, should we put racial justice on the agenda this week? And, and it's almost like, oh, should we? Are we crazy? And like, well, no, if this podcast doesn't engage in this space, if we don't get into these conversations, not saying, hey, we have an answer, but we have to talk about this. Even with Chris Caba's death, was like, do we talk about it? And actually, it was great here to have somebody coming from uh, one of our contributors was a, from a Met Police background uh, and somebody else who's campaigned alongside uh, a number of victims uh, at the hands of the police but they sat together and actually did a, a kind of contribution seminar together and talked about that uh, and and i think really healthy ways as to how those are not compete they're not necessarily always at odds with each other this is the reality i mean of the police officer saying look as a black man in the police force i have to wrestle with these inside and understand mm -hmm. where my colleagues are at and you as a pastor and campaigner in this case the other gentleman then had to like how do we keep the space and they know each other and they're in dialogue so that was because we've got to go through that. I think one of the things somebody's saying, look, one, it's a longer journey. Uh, this isn't going to be resolved. We're in our after our council. This council is EA on a journey that has been on for some time. But just working through that kind of the truth telling, the space for lament, the confession, for, for the repentance, forgiveness, the restorative nature. But that, that that's a whole lot of stages that need to go on. Just hearing stories from me was really powerful mm. just to understand the lived experience of some people. And challenging somebody saying, I think I've said it on here before, as a lawyer, as a white, middle class, educated individual, one, I've barely ever been stopped by the police, and two, if I have, I, I was a police prosecutor. I mean, that was my job as a lawyer in part. So I would have said to the police, oh, you need to do this, you need to do this, this. I'm, I understand exactly what's going on in that stop and search. Not that it was, wasn't even a stop and search, it was for driving faster than I should have been driving. So, uh, but anyway, there's, there's my confession piece. <laughs> but you know, you just, I've never felt under pressure in the same way and having conversations with people, that's an entirely different experience is just to understand how it feels and why people are going to react in that moment. And stop and search is an incredibly invasive procedure. And yet the policeman is saying it's also necessary, but it needs to be based on intel. How do we hold attention in that and have the more difficult conversations about where this actually lands in reality? Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is is much tougher and we're only at the beginning of our own journey as an organization but we're I suppose what we want to say in part to you is we're not going to run away from those conversations even if we don't have an answer in fact we definitely don't have an answer but we're going to make a contribution to the conversation either rest you want to come in before I go on a further rant <laughs> well I was just going to use this opportunity to remind people to follow us on social media EA UK News on Twitter Evangelical Alliance on Facebook and Instagram or you can email us cross.section at eauk.org Danny has an excellent social slot just in case I forgot that's good you can do that more often Joe I think it's fair to say Joe's somewhat nervous that we've been let loose on our own and she's not here to corral and cajole us and it's true she is right to be nervous so we're going to uh, actually come into land reasonably soon we're going to look at uh, just a few news stories do it slightly differently it's a bit like the newspaper review Danny you get to do on other radio shows like give us one or 
probably one, maybe one or two stories that have uh, struck you in the news this week. You just think we should be reflecting on and, and give us your take. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with uh, energy bills. Uh, I think it's it's received quite a lot of attention this week. There's been further announcements from the government on uh, what they are planning on doing to help this week, particularly businesses and organisations with energy bills. Uh, there's been a little bit more detail about some of the plans around the household energy cap. So households will have a typical household will have the energy cap to two and a half thousand pounds and businesses, charities, churches, organisations will have a comparable support that will hopefully lower their bills. Now, that means that people's bills are still going to be much higher than they were last year and 25% higher than the unit price has been this summer. And this is at a time of year when temperatures are dropping, heating's going on, bills are going to be higher this winter. And there will still be a gap for many households in what they can afford and what they're uh, what they're able to afford and what their energy costs. And yet this is a huge intervention by the government. The government cannot put a price on it because they do not know what the price of energy is going to be over the next two years. But 100 billion has been said. This is... It's probably comparable to the furlough cost. It's a massive intervention, and yet still going to leave families. It's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Because it got announced, wasn't literally on the day the Queen died, and then there's been this pause, and people are still not quite sure what it really means yet, tangibly. Because, as you said, a bit like furlough, that could have been absolutely catastrophic. Or for many people, furlough, the money came in, it kind of replaced it. And in some ways, it on a financial employment level, they've come out the end, not radically different so it's sort of hard to know is this going to be the seismic change in our lives or is it kind of going to be sorted out by the government i'm not expecting you to answer that I'm just i think that's the unknownness out there i think certainly for some businesses i think the support will really help uh, because i think actually the knock-on effects for both businesses and charities and churches i've heard churches talking about their bills rocketing churches mm. that want to be able to open up their doors and provide space for people to have a warm space over the winter saying yeah, but we're going to have a £30,000 bill. We can't afford our heating. We want to be able to serve our community. So I think hopefully it will enable uh, churches, charities, other community groups to, to do their bit to provide support in local communities. Yes, it's definitely a difficult challenge ahead. I, I just want to plug a moment, something that's taking place next week that's relevant to this conversation of churches engaging in their community and providing support, sacrificial support this winter to their local community. And that's part of the Warm Welcome campaign. So on Wednesday, the 28th, of September is an opportunity for churches, church leaders, those across uh, the four nations to gather online, uh, visit warmwelcome.uk, where you can learn more about this initiative and an idea of a kind of a church response, a community response, a grassroots response of providing warm spaces this winter. So there's so much in terms of there's a part for the government to play, there's a part for the church to play, and this is kind of a short-term interim response uh, and engagement in that. And so just want to commend that to our listeners to tune in on Wednesday, the 28th of September. Great, and uh, we were chatting here with John Kirkby, who founded CAP, and just, again, trying to see more practical ways we can get engaged in this. I think there is a huge role for churches, the idea of churches coming together in a particular community and maybe alternating whose building's open or yeah. co-funding that using the most economically like efficient building to 
to keep open because uh, there is a challenge then, as you said, for churches in the spaces that they're in. And the, the, the new story I want to pick up on uh, is a little Northern Ireland one, but it has bumped up onto the main headlines. We got some census data uh, released today. And uh, very predictably, uh, the headline is more from a Catholic background in Northern Ireland than a Protestant background. The little bit of history is Northern Ireland was formed as a specific state with a, an inbuilt Protestant majority. And that was kind of the idea. And that has shifted. That has been absolutely predictable. We all knew that was coming. In fact, the only real surprise is that it didn't tip slightly more. I guess what's interesting, David Smith, who runs our Northern Ireland office, and I were just observing the number of people still identifying as Christian in Northern Ireland is very high. We've seen a little bit of a drop in in the uh, Protestant churches, but actually the, the kind of more independent churches are growing. And we know from our Talking Jesus uh, research, and this will come as the main census data comes in England and Wales too, we're going to see a drop in people who identify as Christian. And those people don't go to church. I'm not saying I'm not worried about that, but I'm, I'm not much less concerned than the underlying figures that something like Talking Jesus was telling us about practicing Christians where we have seen much less of a change. Actually, that's a relatively consistent. So we are seeing a drop UK-wide, I think, in the number of people who identify as Christian, but those people weren't going to church, weren't actually engaged. And in many ways, that might not have been a healthy thing for them to say they're a Christian, but no engagement. And this is one of the tensions taking us back, I think, for me and Welby's sermon, what he did really well is try and tie us in what we see is a church service there with liturgy that connects for people but we're not a christian nation in the sense that everybody's a christian which was a historical view that i think somebody had and he used the opportunity i think as best he could to push a little into that uh, and and as, as we kind of land this podcast i suppose i want to go back to a couple of words he said just towards the end he did mention judgment uh, and mercy and actually in a way that many churches aren't very comfortable doing so i was i like that and uh, he pushed in and said that the queen was a follower before she was a leader and he was really clear who she followed but he did end around that hope and he said we'll meet again that our service in life and we've got hope in death that we see in the queen and challenged all of us to follow her example her inspiration, her trust in, and her faith in God. As you say, Alyssa, we could be really clear on that. We want to say absolutely in the crucified and risen Savior in Jesus. Uh, and he did point people to Jesus and said, will, will we meet again? And really kind of ask that question. And that was the most profound intersectional moment, I think, of faith in the public square in the last week and probably in the, in the last year in our country. Mm. And I want to pray, and I think our collective prayer is that that will continue to resonate with people. The playbacks on that, the readbacks on that will be phenomenal by comparison with almost any other story. And the hope is that all the little elements that came together there and ultimately the life of Her Majesty will be that moment. A lot of other commentaries in the BBC and papers to kind of skip past whether faith was mentioned, but in a, in a kind of phrase or a sentence. But actually, if you get to review some of the clips from those Christmas sermons you were talking about, Danny, she was pretty clear, pretty punchy. And it really made a difference. And we do know where she is. And our prayer now is for the new king that he will have faith in the same way. But actually for everybody, he's just another image bearer like the rest of us. And with that, I'm going to end my ranting in case I come into any further trouble. Uh, you've been with us for Cross Section. It's been a real pleasure. It's been Danny, Alyssa and myself. Uh, our thanks to Joe Evans, who has helped try and, try and cajole us, even though she hasn't been on the call, and make us behave ourselves. To Chris, who's doing post-production. Do check us out on the socials. Do give us a like, a review, share it with your friends. Uh, we'd love to get the word out. We'd love others to be listening. Uh, and do rate us and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This has been Cross Section. Be blessed. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.